Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 16? The Gospel of John in chapter 16 today will be looking in verses 16 through the end of the chapter. You know, as we read this text today, and as we have read and studied really everything since chapter 12, when John began to record the last week of the life of Jesus, it seems as if John remembers every tiny detail of these last few hours. It's as if time itself has slowed down as he records these last moments that he has with his Savior, storing up every minute, every memory, every message in his heart in these very last moments before Jesus' death. As we examine the text today, I want you to understand that these are the very last words of Jesus to his disciples before his death. Chapter 17 will be dealing with the real Lord's Prayer. It will be dealing with Jesus praying uh, to the Father. And then as soon as chapter 17 ends, as soon as his prayer ends... A group of soldiers come out to the Garden of Gethsemane and they will take Jesus away and beat him. And eventually he will hang on the cross and die for our sins. These words that we read today are the very last words of Jesus to his disciples before his death. Now we, for the most part, do not get to decide our last words. We don't know when those will occur. Most of the time, Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen next. And so he is careful in this passage to enunciate with clarity the last words that he wants his disciples to hear. Since our passage is so large today, instead of reading it all at front, Uh, We are going to uh, read it verse by verse. And so right now let's ask the Lord to bless this time of the reading and studying of his word. Would you pray with me please? Father in heaven, we need you. This is your word. We are your people. And Father, we desperately need you right now to illuminate the truth of your word into the hearts of your people. Father, my prayer today is that if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, who have not been transformed by the gospel, by the power of Jesus, I pray that today they would come to know you. And Father, for those of us who have already repented of our sins and have turned to you, I pray that today you would draw us closer to you, that you would encourage us and convict us So that as we leave this place, we would leave looking more like Jesus than when we came in here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Now, Jesus chooses these last words very carefully. We want to study them diligently, and I want us to see now uh, four very important truths of these last words of Jesus. Number one, in verses 16 through 24, we are going to see Jesus conveys this message out of sorrow, joy. Out of sorrow, joy. Look with me in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now you need to understand the gravity of this statement. You and I, we, we have known one another for about a decade now. I've been your pastor for five years, and I've been on staff for longer than that, and a member here for a little bit longer than that time. And I have thoroughly enjoyed and been blessed. I think the word blessed, I have enjoyed it, but I think the word blessed is a much more appropriate word. I've been thoroughly blessed by our relationship, by uh, being your friend and by being your pastor, getting to know you. And I would like to think... I would hope that in some way you might feel the same. But now imagine, now after 10 years of being together, imagine if I were to stand up here with you today and I were to say, listen, a little while and you will see me no longer. Now, I realize perhaps I should immediately now, I'm thinking I should have picked a more beloved person from the church for you to understand how important this statement is. But Jesus is telling his disciples that he is about to go away. And their hearts are aching. They are sorrowful. They are traumatized. It's only going to increase here. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of, his some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. His disciples still did not understand. Should be great encouragement for those of us who've been studying the Bible for so long and we come to certain passages and we go, oh, Lord, I'm still not sure exactly what this means. Would you please illuminate the truth of your word in my life? The disciples had been around Jesus night and day for years, sitting underneath the direct teaching of Jesus. They got to see it firsthand, all of the miracles, all of the teaching. They were eyewitnesses to it. In 1 John, when John is talking about being with Jesus, he uses just this graphic description of we touched him with our hands, we saw him with our eyes, everything. The disciples have had Jesus pouring his life into them, and yet they still did not understand what was about to happen. Now, is this poor teaching on behalf of Jesus? No. He had at times before this alluded to the cross and to the resurrection. He had at times alluded to the suffering that was coming. And at other times, before this very moment, Jesus had told his disciples directly what was going to happen. Explicitly. For example, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, just one of many examples. This is before his transfiguration. 
This is uh, long before uh, Jesus will be at the cross. This is long before our moment that we're studying today. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, the scripture says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus had explicitly told them over and over again, not just once, over and over again, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem I will die at the hands of the Pharisees, at the hands of the scribes and the elders. I will be killed, but I will be raised again. Explicit. And yet they still did not understand it. They could not imagine life without Jesus. These are, you know, we, we kind of forget the reality of what happened in the lives of these disciples. They had families. They had occupations. They were fishermen and tax collectors. They had responsibilities and a family line that they needed to continue so that they could be respected in Israel. And they abandoned all of it to follow Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going away. And they're asking, how long are we talking about? I can't imagine life without you, Jesus. I can't imagine not sitting down and talking with you. I can't imagine not being in your presence each and every day. How long are we talking? Now, they're talking to themselves about this, kind of whispering and murmuring. And Jesus, he doesn't have to overhear it. But in verse 19, the scripture says that he knows what question they are asking themselves. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He did not have to read their facial expressions. You know, sometimes you can just see someone's facial expression and you know what they're thinking. Some people have asked, Josh, do you look at certain people whenever you're preaching? No, because sometimes you can look at someone and know exactly what they're thinking. <laughs> Jesus didn't have to look in the eyes of someone and analyze their facial expressions and come to a conclusion about what they were thinking about. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he responds to them in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's telling them of the coming moments. You will weep and wail. The word lament here is, is not a silent whimpering, but an overcome with grief, just wailing. Un, uh, it doesn't matter who else is around them. They're, they are overcome with grief. You are going to be weeping and wailing. You will be filled with sorrow. It will pour out. You will be broken in the next few moments. And the whole world will seem as if it is crashing around you. But while you're doing that, to add to your grief, you need to understand that in this time of your sorrow, the world will be rejoicing. That's what happened at the cross. The cross was nothing but a sideshow to the world, a celebration. As Jesus 
languished in pain on the cross. They cackled and laughed and pointed and ridiculed the grotesqueness and maliciousness of the cross was celebrated, intoxicating to the world. Jesus is telling them, while you are mourning, they are going to be celebrating. You know, it reminds me, uh, not long after I graduated from high school, uh, from B.B. Uh, High School, proud B.B. Badger, still am to this day, Graduated from high school, joined the military, came back from uh, basic training and was going to school there in BB, doing some uh, learning at uh, Arkansas State University in BB. And uh, during that period of time after basic training, we had discovered that one of my friends from high school that I had graduated with had died in combat in Afghanistan. And it, it uh, swept through that little town of BB. All of the people who graduated with this young man, our hearts were broken. We couldn't believe it. It was the first for us. And the church, First Baptist Church of BB, which is where I grew up, was going to host the funeral. And we had discovered that there was going to be an organization of whom I will not name here, who is neither Baptist nor a church had announced that they were going to show up and picket the funeral. Oh, I cannot from this uh, holy place right now tell you the thoughts that went on in my heart and in my mind. But I remember pulling into the parking lot of First Baptist BB to attend the funeral and looking across the street and seeing the men and women laughing and holding up signs that should never be held up, holding up signs, talking about God loving the death of the soldiers. When I read this, I think about that moment. How could, in some people's grief, others find such joy? The world found great joy in the death of Jesus. They were excited about it. And Jesus says, listen, my people, you're going to weep. You're going to have sorrow. But I want you to know that as I'm dying, as you're weeping, and as sorrow is filling your hearts, the world will be rejoicing. Let's continue in verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Here, Jesus tells the disciples that their sorrow will be turned into joy. And my friends, that's really what the gospel does, isn't it? The gospel first brings into our hearts sorrow. Remember when you first became aware. I mean, first you really knew that you were a sinner and that your sin was, uh, condemned you before God. That your sin in the sight of God made you worthy of death and hell and separation from God forever and ever and ever. And that caused great mourning and sadness, or at least it should have. 
I suppose that if there's anyone here today who had no mourning, at least in their hearts, uh, when they came to know Jesus, I consider that you should check your salvation. Because the, the gospel first brings conviction and sorrow in the life of a believer. But once the grace has taken root in that regenerate heart, it brings forth joy. You see, I had deserved, I had earned nothing from myself but death and hell. But Jesus has provided for me joy, everlasting In a sense, this is what the gospel does in our life. But what Jesus is saying here in this moment of your profound sorrow, in this moment of pain, I am providing for you joy out of sorrow. You're going to mourn, but your grief is necessary. This hour is necessary to bring about salvation. I think about my first child being born what a wonderful moment. Let me tell you how really kind of selfish I was in the midst of all of it. Sarah was, uh, uh, we had checked in the hospital at 5 a.m. that morning or so it felt like. We were there all day long. Uh, finally, it came uh, time. I mean, it was around 11, 11.30. And uh, the doctor had noticed that I was really anxious. He pulled me to the side and I was crying, okay? So real, man, real supportive husband here. And he goes, are, are you okay? I said, just take care of my wife. <laughs> and he's, that's what I do every day. <laughs> yeah, I got this. I still remember that first noise that that little boy made. I still remember placing Bo into Sarah's arms for the first time. All of that pain, all of that anguish, but in that moment... All light compared to the joy of holding that little child. Jesus is saying that the cross, that the pain that I will endure, the flesh that will be ripped from my body, the thorns that will be pressed into my head, the ridicule, all of it, worth it. Because I'm making a way for salvation for you. I'm making a way for you to have an everlasting relationship with me. Here Jesus is saying that out of sorrow, his people will have joy. The pain of the cross made a path for the pleasure of the Christian. Let me say that again. The pain of the cross made a path for the pleasure of the Christian. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What kind of joy has Jesus given us? He has given us a joy that cannot be taken from us. He's given us a joy that cannot be ripped from our hands. A joy that is everlasting. You know, the Bible says that There'll be sorrow that may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. That's the type of joy Jesus came to provide for you and for me. A joy that is, regardless of circumstances, always there. That though you may have sorrow and anxiety in your heart and in your mind and your body, that joy is still ever present because Christ has made a way for us. 
Verse 23, in that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, he's telling the disciples kind of a change in the way that things have been for you. Because up until this moment, if the disciples needed anything, they just asked Jesus. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father. So from now on, you don't have to ask me because of what I'm doing at the cross. You can go to the Father directly in my name. Until now, he says, you've asked me. You've asked nothing in my name. But now you go to the Father in my name and he will grant it to you. Now people read this and they say, here it is. Here's the formula to get from God whatever you want. That's not what this text is saying. You can't pray something in Jesus' name and it just appear before you. That's not what the Scripture is saying. When the Scripture says, ask it in my name, it means in accordance with his character and his person, in accordance with his will. Jesus has said, I've done all this. Ask and you receive that your joy may be full. You see, the last things that he's wanted his disciples to know is that from this sorrow will come joy. Secondly, the next few points are much shorter, okay? Secondly, from distance, nearness. From distance, nearness. Look in verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. We, we are naturally... Our natural disposition in life is separated from God. You understand that, right? Many people would say that we're all just God's children. That's not the case. We are, from our birth, separated from God. Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 1 through 2, the scripture says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We are naturally separated from God. The separation is vast. The separation is uh, unreachable by ourselves. We cannot get to God apart from Jesus. We cannot be in right standing or relationship with him apart from Jesus. Our natural disposition is separated from God. But don't confuse that with thinking that God doesn't love you. Even though this separation is self-inflicted, don't for a moment let that trick you into thinking that God does not love you. Some would have you believe that the Father, he is the rule keeper. He is the judge. And Jesus somehow is the, is the one who's got a little bit different personality. He's a little more free going and he's come to bring life. And they'll say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. But friends, I want you to know that the Father loves you. There is no God of the Old Testament and then a separate God of the New Testament. They are one and the same. He is a God that never changes, never has, never will. Perfect. And all of his perfections, wonderful. And Jesus here says, 
But it's not just that I love you. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus came, took on our flesh. By the way, this speaks of his pre-existence. Jesus wasn't just born and laid in a manger. That wasn't his first time that he's ever existed. Jesus has always existed from the beginning of time. He has always been present. John 1, 1 makes it clear all throughout the scripture. We understand that Jesus didn't just come into being in the New Testament era. He has always existed. He came from the Father and he was proceeding back to the Father. He came to this earth to die, to take our sins upon him so that he could put his righteousness upon us and that we could come to be where he is and enjoy eternal life with the Father. As we'll read in the next chapter, enjoy that perfect unity and love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experienced before even the creation of the world. Think about that. God wants you in on that. You see, from your distance, he is wanting to bring nearness, to break down the dividing walls of hostility, to take you who are far off and bring you near. We, by our own merits and our own work, deserve to be separated from God. But Jesus is saying here that from your distance, he has brought nearness. Verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And it, this is where, like, if I were Jesus, I would have said, Now? Like, now is when this happens? Now you believe? Or perhaps I would have, I would know what's about to happen. I'd be like, Yeah, you really believe, don't you? In a few moments, all of you are going to be gone. And you're going to leave. But one of the, one of the uh, qualities that the, the people of Israel looked for in the coming Messiah is that he would be able to anticipate the questions. He would answer them before they were even asked. And that's, of course, what Jesus just did here. He showed them once again his divinity, distance from nearness. Now, thirdly, just be very quick. We're going to look in verse 33. I want you to see two points with me. He says that in tribulation we have peace. We have seen so far today that from sorrow he has brought joy. From distance he has brought nearness. Now I want you to see in tribulation he's brought peace. I have said these things to you, verse 33, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. The peace that Jesus has extended for believers is not a currency to be spent in times of ease, but a currency that increases in value with trials and tribulation. We sit back in our air-conditioned building. We sit back in our comfortable seats knowing that we're about to go eat a a meal from whatever variety we want to choose from. Go back to our air-conditioned homes. We have everything uh, 
I mean, we have every, it seems like we have everything right in front of us for our comfort and for our ease. But the New Testament church, the people in Israel would have understood this. Sitting back looking at a, at a mud hut, sitting back looking at the prospects of their life and an early death, they would have understood what it meant and what the value is of true and lasting peace. Jesus says here, I'm leaving you with peace that's meant to be used in times of tribulation. My friends, when you're going through difficult times, don't you know that Jesus is with you? My friends, when you are going through trials and tribulation in your life, don't you know that Jesus is with you and in him you may have peace. Now, you may be trying to find peace outside of that. Some folks may try to drown out the troubles of this world with drugs, with alcohol. They may try to distract themselves from the things of this world with sin and living away from God. But my friends, the only true peace that you can find can be found only in Jesus. He is the prince of peace. That is his kingdom. That is his domain. And he tells his disciples that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. Peace is only found in him. Today, you're looking for that peace. You've searched high and low. Stop searching because you have found it. In Jesus, you can have true peace. And it's the type of peace that goes beyond our understanding. I think of Paul in a little jail in Philippi. Just a few days earlier, he had gone to bed and he had had a dream in the middle of a night. A Macedonian man was saying, come over and share the gospel with me. And so he, he wakes up Silas. Silas, you got to get up. We're about to have a big revival in Philippi. God has told us to go over to Macedonia. There's a man that appeared to me in a dream. We're going to go over and share the gospel. And so they're excited about this revival that is about to occur. So they go to Macedonia. They enter into the city of Philippi. And as they are there, a young lady who's possessed by a demon is is behind them and is shouting out and antagonizing them as they are proclaiming the gospel. So Paul turns around and he casts out the demon. One problem. This young lady who was possessed by this demon had abilities to tell people their fortune. And her owner, the people who owned her, got a lot of business from that ability that that demon generated. And so they became angry. Paul and Silas are just sharing the gospel when all of a sudden these business owners and influential people of Philippi get around Paul and Silas and they begin to tear off their clothes in public and beat them, almost leaving them for dead. They're taken to jail. They're chained up. And yet what does the Bible say about Paul and Silas beaten up, clothes torn off of them? Their dream or thought of a revival seems as if it's gone. They're sitting in a jail cell with chains on them at the midnight hour. And what are they doing? 
They're singing hymns. You see, that's the kind of peace and joy that God brings. That's the kind of peace. You know, most of us will be sitting there, I didn't do nothing wrong. I'm going to tell them exactly what. And then if the jail cells opened up as they would in just a few moments with Paul, we'd have been looking for our way out. I mean, if I get put in a jail cell for the gospel, I trust the Lord, but I've also seen Shawshank Redemption, and I'm going to try to find that hole in that wall and try to get my way out of that place. But here they are, knowing that death could be imminent. They're beating up blood, still coming, pulling out of their nose, out of the, their scabs, are scabbing over, and they're singing songs. That's the kind of peace Jesus has provided for his people. In tribulation, peace. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Today you're looking for peace. You have anxiety. You have trouble in your life. Spend time looking to Jesus, walking with Jesus, and I believe you will find that peace that surpasses all understanding. Lastly, I want you to see over the world, victory. Over the world, victory. From sorrow, joy, from distance, nearness, and tribulation, peace. Finally, Jesus says, over the world, Victory. Look with me in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have, will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. You know, Jesus wasn't really a good salesman by our standard today. He has spent a good portion of these last moments of his life maybe giving them every reason not to follow him. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to accentuate the positives, and there is no fine print to his teaching. You won't find an asterisk by his teaching with a footnote at the bottom telling you all of the other side effects that may happen with following Jesus. He's very straight and to the point. He's going to say, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have difficult times. He has laid them out in front of them. It's going to be hard. The world, that is the system of the world, will hate you. They will persecute you. There will be trials and tribulation, oppression, adversity, pain and heartache, suffering and loss. But, he says, take courage. Take heart. Why? Because I've given you all these reasons why perhaps you wouldn't want to follow me. But let me give you one that outdoes all of them. The world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. You're going to have tribulation in this world. But my friends, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. He overcame the world. He conquered death. And he offers to us who will repent and call upon the name of Jesus. He offers to us eternal life. He offers to us hope. He offers to us that same victory because he is one. We have won. The Bible says in the book of Romans in chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us and who has saved us. In the next few moments, after these words, he will pray. Then that group of the army and the police will come in, take Jesus, he'll die on the cross. It will look like the world's most epic loss. 
Everyone's pointing at him. That was Jesus. Look at him up there. That was Jesus. Look at his body. Hey, Jesus, why don't you call down some of them angels that you've been talking about to come and to take care of you? Look at the man who was Jesus. And as they took Jesus down from that cross, they would look at his body. And they would say, look at that chest that's no longer moving up and down, breath no longer going in his lungs. Look at the man who was Jesus. And the next day in the newspaper, I imagine in Jerusalem, they would have had a small profile on the man who was Jesus. But come Sunday morning, there was no was, but there was an is. It's not Jesus was, but look at who Jesus is. He rose from the grave, my friend, overcoming death and hell, and he has provided for you and me eternal life. Jesus says, before I go, let me let you know something, disciples. I want you to understand this. I want you to grasp it. From this sorrow, there will come joy. From your distance, I have brought nearness. In your tribulation, I've provided peace. And over this world, I have the victory. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.